Good morning. So one of my thoughts as I was studying St. Ephraim the Syrian, one of my thoughts was, why did I ever pick this guy? <laughs> um, so this is not the authoritative teaching on St. Ephraim, but with God's help and perhaps with your help, we'll get through. When I was taking classes at Neshota House Seminary up in Delafield, Wisconsin, remember the first morning I was there, we had morning prayer and communion. And as I went up to receive communion, there were two teachers sitting in the back, one Eastern Orthodox and one Evangelical, highly respected, and I deeply respected both of them. But as I went up to take communion, I noticed that uh, they were not also going up to take communion. And I was startled. And my thought was, why aren't they going up? One body, one bread, one cup, one Lord, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But for all of us gathered there at Neshota House that morning, apparently not one table. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I know there are reasons for that, but when I asked my professors at Neshota, what's the reason? I never got a satisfactory answer. Pascal said the heart has its reasons, the mind doesn't know. And the mind also has its reasons the heart doesn't understand sometimes. <laughs> so one holy Catholic, and I'm going to get into St. Ephraim in just a bit here. One holy Catholic and apostolic church does not often present itself to the world in keeping with these markers of Nicene ecclesiology. The central purpose of the Nicene Creed was to bind the church together around the essential truth the truths of the gospel, and its unifying theological core. The triune God has made himself known to us in Jesus Christ. This is the ideal, but I wonder, and I wonder if you wonder with me, if the church is often more interested in defining orthodoxy, which has already been defined, than in carrying out the more difficult and the more rewarding work of fleshing out orthodoxy in the world. This is our Father's world. But sometimes our, our focus on theological correctness and scriptural exactness combined with our own biases can become myopic to the point that we stop seeing our world as God sees it and as God's people around the world see it and through the eyes and heart of his son and to see God fully revealed in Jesus. And sometimes I think when we march through scripture, it's almost like we have a chokehold on it. And we don't allow it to tell its story. We don't allow it to breathe and allow it to breathe life into us. And as we read it correctly, we become more human. And a proper reading of the scripture opens the text. And that happens as we read it as others read it. And we go back to the beginning. We go back to the early fathers and see how they read it and interpret it. And we read it together. And we read it in the backdrop, as we heard from James Gordon this morning, of the oppressed who read it and interpreted it. How do they look at it? In other words, we can't silo when we read the scripture. And so I think sometimes we forget that the task of theology and of the church is to live together in union with Jesus as he is revealed 
in Scripture, in sacrament, in the saints, also in sinners, and ex experience and embody the fullness of Jesus' incarnational presence in the world. This is the task of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Saint Ephraim the Syrian helps us find our center of unity around this task. Saint Ephraim serves as a meeting point between East and West. His ancient writings help us get back to the essence of Nicaea so that we know how to live in our Father's world as one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Ephraim lived, I think I picked Ephraim because he's a guy from Asia Minor. I grew up, I think, in Asia Major, Indonesia. I think that's an Asia Major uh, in the Near East. Um, and the way he looked at theology was fascinating. He, he lived in the fourth century AD in the town of Nisibis on the modern day border between Southeast Turkey and Northeast Syria. He taught catechesis and he served as a deacon under the leadership of four remarkable bishops. And for his contribution to Nicene Orthodoxy, he deserves to stand, to stand side by side with the big, the big four, his better known contemporaries, St. Athanasius, uh, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Basil, Basil, and St. Gregory of Nyssa. St. Ephraim wrote in Syriac, and I believe his feast day, Matt, I think is January 28th, uh, celebrated especially by the Syrian Orthodox Church. So he wrote in Syriac, not in Greek and, Greek and Latin, so his writings are much less accessible than uh, might otherwise have been so um, if they were in Greek or Latin, of course. So his most important work is done in poetry. And we don't often expect to find serious theology expressed in poetic form. We tend to not take seriously a theological thinker who happens to put forward his theological vision through this medium of poetry. So Ephraim's theological vision is it's not described within a particular framework, uh, particularly European or Western philosophical tra tradition. Rather, he presents it by images that are drawn both from the Bible and from human experience. So he uses very simple images, eating and drinking, dressing and undressing, birth and death, and he strives to give a vision not so much of historical truth, but of spiritual reality. It's a vision of the spiritual world or, or a spiritual vision of the world. And he writes with an eye to finding the inner meaning in that spirituality, the inner meaning perceived by the inner eye and the light by which that eye operates is the light of faith. I was thinking about how to try to illustrate this. Um, Tammy has had a good friend, she passed away recently, but she was at Wheaton College taking PE and taking swimming uh, from uh, John Lederhaus. He was just here earlier, I believe. Um, and she took the class the entire semester and enjoyed the class and I think she did very well, got an A. And one day after the semester was over, it was near graduation, she was walking along and she was startled to see a gentleman coming up to her and saying, hi, Lolly. And she looked at him and said, who are you? And he said, I'm John Lederhaus, your swimming PE coach. And 
I've been coaching you all semester. We've seen each other, you know, twice a week. And Lolly said, oh my goodness. The difference was, of course, that when she was swimming, she didn't have her glasses on. And she had put her glasses on, and she finally saw John Lederhaus for who he really was. <laughs> this is similar, I think, to the great Emmaus story. When Jesus would walk along with the disciples, they have no idea who he is. They don't have that vision yet, that vision of faith. And he opens up the scriptures to them. But it's not until he also breaks bread that their eyes are opened and they recognize him and they're thrilled. And you need both opening of scripture, but also the presence of Jesus Christ is manifested through his Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. You need the light of faith, the light of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, but you also need your glasses on to better understand what the Scripture and God, the Spirit opens that up. And I believe not just reading glasses, but progressive lenses. <laughs> they take you back to early, earliest reading of Scripture and also take you forward. Um, so Ephraim does that for us. His, his writings are relevant, uh, relevant and fresh, and they can be restorative for the church, in part because he does not rely on dogmatic definitions to express his theology. Uh, Ephraim scholar, who I relied on heavily, Sebastian Brock, he says that Ephraim's approach to theology avoids, indeed abhors, definitions, which he regards as boundaries that impose limits. Ephraim proceeds by way of paradox and symbol poetically expressed. And Brock uses an analogy to contrast the philosophical Western approach to theology with Ephraim's symbolic approach. So I don't have a slide of this, but I think you can imagine this with me. Imagine a circle with a center point. When you have a circle with a center point, your eye is always focused on the bullseye, the center point. And the, the philosophical approach tries to define an aspect of God as a center point in that circle, and to really define that center point. Um, all thinking within the boundary of the circle emerges from and is confined to that central idea. The symbolic approach, on the other hand, leaves the center undefined, a bit of a mystery, and surrounded by a series of paradoxical opposites on the outside of the circle. And you get an idea of what the center is all about, by joining up the various opposite points of paradoxes on the circle circumference. And so Brock writes, Ephraim's radically different approach to, is to use poetry, which can sustain the dynamism and fluidity of paradox and symbolism. Poetry, what is poetry? Well, it's many things, but I believe one of the things it is, it's story condensed so thick you have to spend a great deal of time to understand all the possible interpretations within that poem. And poetry, like story, Northrop Frye writes this, is also based in metaphor. The language of poetry is a concrete language where objects of sense experience are in the foreground. Think of the sensory experience it is to be in here. And how that speaks to us, how, that's how that ministers to us, how it opens up a vision to us of Christ and of Scripture. Poetic language, Northrop Fry writes, uh, differs from conceptual or dialectical language because of the abstract language of the latter, of conceptual or dialectical language, for which poetry only has a limited tolerance. And so, if you think about the Bible, story and poetry, the Psalms we read every Sunday morning to get together, 
And Ephraim looked at the Bible through poetry. He looked at the poetry of the Bible. It's how he approached, read, and interpreted the Bible. And what's interesting is that Ephraim, against the backdrop of Arian heresy, uh, Ephraim's poetic, his symbolic approach becomes even more compelling. And we don't need to get into all the heresies, uh, Marcion, uh, Arian, uh, Arius, Apollinaris, and all that, but I will say that the heretical tendency, starting with Marcion, way back to the first century, is to see constructive tension as a contradiction. It wants to settle the question and the tension and come to a decision. So all those guys, they were wrestling with Scripture. And all of them were wrestling together. What, what, what is this saying? What's the central truth here? But the heretics, as they were defined later uh, against orthodoxy, they would not allow for the profound and central paradox of the entire biblical narrative, the whole story that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And I love what John Baer, uh, teacher of patristics at St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York, he writes, those opposed to Nicaea applied everything that is said of Christ to him in a univocal manner, ending up with a semi-divine mediator, a creature but not as one of the creatures, divine but not as God himself. So what strikes me about what John Baer says is that heresies are univocal. Heresies insist we can't have it both ways. But you know who can have it both ways? God can. He can figure that out. And he did. And this is the central truth affirmed in Nicaea that provides coherence and unity among the three sources of Christian authority, the rule of faith, scripture, and bishop. Scripture, of course, is reading the right texts. That's the canon. The rule of faith is reading the right texts in the right way. And the bishop, his responsibility, now today, of course, heard also, receive the texts in a reliable process of transmission. So we've got apostolic guardianship, apostolic method, apostolic way. And they must go together to make the scripture valid. And what's interesting here, this is not an exercise of power. It's an exercise of fidelity as the bishop has a relationship with his church and says, I want you to know the truth. It's not power play. It's authority. It's authority by relationship. I also like what John Baer says, orthodoxy is less to do with capturing a pristine past than envisioning the future, contemplating the crucified and exalted Christ, who is still the coming one. This is the one who Martin Luther King dreamed about, right? That day, the coming one. The content of orthodoxy is not protological, I had to look up that word, the studies of origins and first things, but it's eschatological, it's always forward-looking, and this is in keeping with St. Ephraim's theological vision, vision contemplating, seeing with the eyes of faith that which is to come, not just that which has come before us. And Ephraim's theological method was to explore the central truth of the incarnation, both its orthodoxy and mystery against heresy. Um, and mystery, by the way, is just not an escape hatch, you know? It's a mystery. It's something that we wrestle with to understand. There is an answer. 
We might not know it yet, but we know it's there. It's forward-looking to when we find out that answer someday. And we're working towards that. So, uh, um, so it's a mystery. Ephraim shows us that orthodoxy also is not rigid. It's not fixed. It's not dogmatic. It's not closed. It's not a doctrinal straitjacket. Ephraim's favorite, favorite paradoxes, and here we might want to turn this on, um, when he's talking in, of the incarnation, are the great one who became small, the rich one who became poor, the hidden one who revealed himself. And as he explored orthodoxy through these images and these paradoxes, we realize with Ephraim it's heresy, not orthodoxy, that requires the foreclosure of tension-filled relationship that are the creative and renewing resource of the church in every age. So St. Ephraim works through these paradoxes. As we look at the... by showing both the contrast and the reciprocity in each of them. Um, for example, this is slide one, right? Let's see. Okay. Athanasius' succinct summary of the incarnation that Christ was made man, that we might be made God, Ephraim turns into, he gave us divinity, we gave him humanity. And so Ephraim focuses on this reciprocal relationship between the incarnation and humanity's deification. And he was very careful to point out, if we could just read this, uh, Matt, would you read this? Just, you know, thanks. Free will succeeded in making Adam's beauty ugly, for he, a man, sought to become God. Grace, however, made beautiful his deformity. And God came to become a man. Divinity flew down to draw humanity up. For the Son had made beautiful the deformities of the servant. And so he has become a God just as he desired. Um. Going back to James' sermon, sorry, James, to refer to your great sermon so many times, but we have this image of Jesus on the cross, and what was Jesus? He was covered with sores. He was sick, taking on our deformities and our infirmities to make us gloriously whole, to make us not just deified, small g, by the way, but gloriously big H human, fully human. Jesus came to make us human beings. And Jesus, we become by grace... In that way, what Jesus was by nature. So let's not confuse. You know, we don't become absorbent of the Godhead as God. Um, I love what uh, I wrote it down here. What um, Orthodox Jish, uh, Bishop Callistos Ware, Callistos Ware, he says, In the age to come, God is all in all, but Peter is Peter and Paul is Paul. We retain our own nature and identity. We don't get it. It's not obliterated in the Godhead. Wonderful. Um, so uh, this is a favorite of mine. Go to slide two. Um, how Ephraim portrays Mary and Eve. Is Joy Unger in here? Yes. Could you read this, Joy? Yes. Just as from the 
I love these images, life coming in through the ear. Shema, listen, hear, O Israel. Mary's wise questioning of the angel at the empty tomb, what does that counterbalance? Eve's foolish failure to question the serpent. She just took it at face value. And then, of course, there's another contrasting, complementary balancing act. It becomes most close-knit at the passion. Oops, sorry, I was pressing the wrong one. And, um, Jim, would you read that? In the month of Nisan, our Lord repaid the debts of that first Adam. He gave his sweat in Nisan in exchange for Adam's sweat. The cross in exchange for Adam's tree. The sixth day of the week corresponded to the sixth day of creation, and it was at the turn of the day that he returned the feast to Eden. It's beautiful stuff. Nisan is the first month of the Jewish calendar, spring. Good theology leads to good practice. Remember that St. Ephraim was a deacon. He worked it out with his congregation and beyond. Christian community does not live in the realm of ideas, but in the ordering of our lives together. And this calls for unity. It calls for a coming together in a different and creative way around the center, around the triune God who has made himself known to us in Jesus Christ, around the God who came to us and ministered to us in Jesus Christ. So we encounter living God in tension, Ephraim of Syria held this tension, and as a deacon, his acts of loving service helped to order the lives of his congregants and to give credibility to his theological method. He walked the talk, in other words. And if you think about the work of love, I believe that love itself is inherently paradoxical. Those of you who have loved difficult people, you understand that, right? <laughs> The way of love is to bring and keep the opposites together. It's not preferential love for people that, for, with whom you identify, which is really just a form of self-love. A parent might say to a child, make me proud. Self-love. It's not preferential love, but it's what Kierkegaard uh, calls presupposing love in the other. Even if you have a hard time finding, something, finding something lovely in that other person. Andrew Solomon wrote a great book called Far From the Tree in which he recounts parents who love difficult children and parents want a vertical relationship. They want their children to reflect who they are, vertical. He said, what if your kids go horizontal? What if they're a mess? What if they don't want to do what you want to do? What if they're sick? What if they're mentally ill? What if they're drug addicts? What if they're, and it's just a whole series of things. A parent loves them. In that paradoxical space, he lo a parent loves them in their differences, and that increases and intensifies their love. Do we love like that? Andrew Solomon, Far From the Tree, it's a great book. I, I think that Ephraim's theological approach was made manifest in his diaconal integrity, uh, and a clear theological vision always informs our theological practice. If you are a theologian, you will pray in truth. If you pray in truth, you are a theologian.
Ephraim the Syrian did both. He was a theologian, scholar, and activist. Praying shapes believing, which guides action. And Ephraim's theology was also his biography. Uh, it's a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ that enabled Ephraim to bring the presence of Christ to Christians in his care through the ministry of the word. Deacons are supposed to bring the word, the Eucharistic table, and hospitality. One ancient Mesopotamian symbol that Ephraim uses a great deal is the term medicine of life or salvation by which he brings together the incarnation and the Eucharist. The bread and wine take up residence as a hidden and healing power in those of us who receive the bread and wine. Uh, Mark, would you read this? The medicine of life, it just doesn't re, uh, save us from our sins and heals us. It also makes us want to be holy and true and pure. And in the same way that Christ is the medicine of life, Ephraim shows that Christ is also the treasure hidden in the scripture and that the Bible is sufficient to interpret the scripture. The Bible itself is sufficient And all of this can only happen in and through the church, the church thus, as God restores humanity to himself and uses the church as his place for restoration. So when I come to church, I don't say that I am going to church. I, ra I say, rather, I am going to be with the people whom I love, with whom God has placed, for whom God has placed great affection. For a long time, I sat here in all souls, and I say that uh, um, inertia just kept me here <laughs> until bonds of affection started to form for people who are here. And I realized, and I said, oh, my goodness, I'm starting to like these people. <laughs> Watch out when that happens. And Ephraim's theology is manifest in his ecclesiology, his churchmanship, whatever you want to call it, both in its intellectual expression and its practical outworking. He was a deacon and catechetical teacher, Sunday school, <laughs> in the local church who loved and served as bishops, all four of them. And that in itself is pretty remarkable. And at some point in the last 10 years of his life, Ephraim played a major role in organizing relief for the poor during a severe famine. I'm wrapping it up here. So um, what I find fascinating is uh, Ephraim also talks about how the church, we've just been talking about, regains Eden. And I want to just briefly show you another example of Ephraim's theological approach. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, along with Athanasius, Ephraim regards Christ's incarnation as a central event of the Christian mystery. And the incarnation is how Christ inhabits us, actually resides in us, is at home with us, and how we in turn inhabit the world and are at home in the world that Jesus came to redeem. Uh, in his fascinating essay, Thomas Buchan, he's a professor of historical theology at uh, Neshoda House. I had him for a course. He's, he's just wonderful, just a great guy. Just go up there to meet Thomas Buchan. <laughs> um, he wrote an essay, Paradise is a Landscape of Salvation, and he explores how Ephraim expands this theological principle of the Incarnation 
to make the one holy Catholic and apostolic church the spiritually geographic, geographic center of a reclaimed Garden of Eden to whom the criminal sitting next uh, on the cross next to Jesus, to whom that criminal flew to paradise in Eden. And the church is the ge geographic center of it. So that's a tall order for the church. Um, and in and, and doing this, uh, Ephraim demonstrates his theological approach. And he, he interprets, and you'd have to go read his poetry, but he interprets and then he takes in these elements from the paradise narrative of Genesis 1 to 3. And... Um, in which God's intent for Adam and Eve was that they be deified. And they're deified by exercising their free will to seek and choose the immortal life that was to be conferred by their eating of the tree of life. So they blew it. They went, and run and ran and went ahead. They ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil before they, and, 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 and they, before they, before God's time, and knowing the knowledge of having the knowledge of good and evil, uh, they weren't able to live up, up to that. Of course, they were confused and dismayed. They sinned, and thank God then that they were protected from eating the tree of life, because otherwise they would have lived forever in that state. So they blew it. But when they chose to transgress God's one command. They and all humanity were exiled from Eden. What happens in the incarnation? The church reclaims paradise. The cross of Christ gives us access to the tree of life. And the Eucharist is the fruit of the tree. It's the sacramental presence of Jesus Christ. Someone want to read this? How about you, Jim? Martin, Father Martin once told me, Rob, um, when I preach, sometimes God works through my words. Sometimes he has to work around them. I think it's true of all of us who get up there. Sometimes, Martin said, God works through my words. Sometimes he works around them. But what's important is that I get you to this table. And by the way, Martin was being typically Martin. <laughs> um, God always works through his words. But here's the point around the table. When I'm up here serving, you know, ch uh, the chalice, it's a powerful moment. Things are happening, you know it. God is ministering his grace and his goodness to people in powerful ways. And the sermon is just the appetizer that takes you to the feast. The liturgy is all the context of the great feast that we celebrate here. And this is why I wonder, the one bride of Christ, the holy Catholic and apostolic church, can't we all come to the table together? I think that's what paradise will be, right? Maybe here we can't. 
But there will come a day when we can, and it's going to be wonderful. I love, uh, you know, all souls are, uh, of course, this is our new logo, Brad Cathy. Brad, are you here? Tell us a little bit about this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard, but it's good. Started out as a representation of all souls in Kenya. Mm. And so when we we had the big vote and we kind of uh, decided to go our own way, Martin and I thought it'd be nice to have a new new identity. So this seemed to kind of fit, except we removed the colors. Right. So those are just symbols of South Africa to me, and they mean nothing. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Unlike Ephraim, who would have been. <laughs> um, but I, we love that, and uh, the, the, the fact that they're African, and that you know our church reaches out to Africa and reaches Africa, and, and, and they become part of our community, right? The KDS and all of that. So it's, it's a wonderful symbol. Of course, we've got the cross there and um, reaching out and uh, reaching the world. Um, I also like... We haven't used this yet, but I asked Joel Sheasley a while ago to uh, do something that reflects souls on mission, and, and he came up with this. Oops. And that's close to what Ephraim had in mind. The cross of Christ, the center point of the incarnation, whereby we meet God, we are deified, we become fully human, and we become human together as a church. And the church grows out like a tree, organically and beautifully, to bring in, come to the tree, this great tree, and rest and nurture yourself, the tree back there. So I think this church, we do come very close to living and breathing and breathing in and breathing out Ephraim's theological vision, whether we know it or not. And it's a wonderful thing. Um, well, it's 1043. This is most excellent. It's quite early. We might have time just to drink more coffee and talk. Yeah, uh, Jennifer. Uh, one comment, one question. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I think about that literally every Sunday as we gather I think about that as a reality um, the question is this you mentioned a couple times um, the idea of becoming fully human can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that yeah that might be a, 
slightly foreign concept to those of us who think that we become more like God or more like Jesus. But if you think about it, the divine project in Genesis, when God says, you know, let us make man in our image, that's the divine project. Let us make man, the Trinity, the three, through the incarnation, making man in God's own image. And making man. And so I think what Adam and Eve were not able to do, become fully realized human beings living in a deep and committed relationship and a relationship of trust and love with their Heavenly Father, Jesus came to restore that in us. So the divine project is to make us fully realized human beings. I remember listening to an interview by, with Tom Petty, and he said to the interview, this is just before he died shortly, he said, I've been great at music. I've got the music thing down, but I'm working at becoming a person. <laughs> you know, becoming a good, becoming a person who, who lives into his music, who, who, who loves people. And um, so becoming a human being, I think, is really what we, what we are striving after. It's the ascetical ideal when we work hard as a spirit, as a spirit works his energy into us to become better people, to become good people. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. So I think of all that when I think about becoming a human being. And Jesus had to do so in his living. And as he lived, the creed, by the way, doesn't talk about how he lived, right? Or the Maasai creed does. It talks about Jesus going on safari. It's great. But as he was born, as he lived as a human being and loved as a human being and died as a human being, even death is to become human. And that's a glorious way of looking at death because we're all dying and some of us are closer to that point than others are. And I love that. So that's a little bit about uh, what I think of and what I've read. And Any others want to address that, you know, that thought? Yeah, Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. That's a great thought. Um, that's a different understanding of beauty, too, isn't it, through our deformities? Yeah. Joy. I think there's not uniformity there. We love uh, each of us. We love each other in our differences, right? And uh, even in our sin and even in our deformity. 
to love in that and love through that in the garden and do that work, that restorative work, yeah. There is a ton here. There is a ton here, and it's just so hopeful and so inspiring. Um, any other thoughts, questions? Come on. If you want to read some more, that's some poetry. Is there a book that yeah. you want to start with? Yeah. I mean, Sebastian Brock, uh, The Luminous Eye, it's great. He's written a couple books. And so um, I've immersed myself in this book, and he's written another book also that includes a lot of uh, his poetry on, on paradise. Um, and of course, Google, I'm sure, but these guys help you through it, you know? They help you understand it, yeah. Uh, and this is another great book that I picked up when I was in the show, The Partakers of the Divine Nature. It's a very Eastern view of looking at, uh, about, uh, at the theosis, how we become like God. But I, I took uh, um, Thomas Buchan, the guy, the theologian up at No Soda House. He's got a chapter in here on, on, on paradise, the Garden of Eden. So it's wonderful. Partakers of the divine nature. Uh, yeah, well, that's all you need to know. Editors Michael Christensen and Jeffrey Whitton. So, um, Garden of Eden found in Wheaton, Illinois. There it is. There it is. Um, excellent. Thanks, Mark.